Hello, listeners. I wanted to give you a little warning before we started our show. This week's episode is going to deal with some heavier topics than normal. We're going to be dealing with rape, incest, pedophilia. If any of these topics make you uncomfortable, this may not be the episode for you. Hello, 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 everyone. Hey, guys. All right, so uh, this week we are obviously taking a look at Black Christmas, uh, the classic film. But there's something in the air uh, already this year, that Christmas cheer and a little bit of flu season already. Yeah, so if I sound a little nasally, it's because I've got a little bit of a cold, but I'll be all right. Yeah, yeah, I had to deal with it uh, a bit last week as well. I I really did. (laughs) It really wasn't one of my uh, better shows. I I was very, very nasally. So uh, I certainly understand, and hopefully everybody have uh, uh, sympathies for you as well, because uh, it's just not a real easy thing to deal with uh, being sick like this and having to try to record for like an hour. Yeah. Be that as it may, though, we are still definitely going to uh, bring you our normal show yeah. and do everything that we got. So uh, without really any further introduction, because we have a lot to talk about over these three movies, let's talk about Black Christmas. how much i love these old school trailers yeah they uh they really are fantastic to me <laughs> i just i appreciate this older style of the way things used to be done in some sort of bygone era so when did you first see this movie uh probably a lot later in life i probably saw it as an adult between you and i yeah i i know I have an origin for this movie. I, I went to go to the local Hollywood video, which already dates me immensely. Uh, this was in Victoria, Texas. I was going to school there. So uh, I went over the Hollywood video and I went to the horror section because I grew up in a small town. So I was enamored to go to a much larger video store and have the options of this big horror section to catch all these classics I had never seen before. And I go to rent Black Christmas. I grab it, get the... You know, get the you know, take the protection off the bottom like they always had there. I go home, pop it in the VCR, and it is of such a degraded and terrible quality that I am so confused on almost anything going on in the movie or in the runtime. I mean, it, it, it's really like, <laughs> I, like I couldn't understand dialogue or anything like that. Wow. I mean, that's how poorly done it was. When I think I took it back the next day and I said I had a hard time watching this copy. The manager popped it in like the store, like VCR, and immediately gave me my money back. <laughs> That's how poor the the copy really was. Wow! They uh, gave you your money back. Yeah, they gave me. And you know how those places were; they never ever yeah. wanted to give you money back for any reason at all. So I had to wait a little while before I actually got a chance to see it. And you know, back in the day, and no one ever really thinks about it for great movies anymore. But I watched the the film really for the first time off of IFC. Because oh, okay. AIFC used to do those things kind of in the late 90s. They would actually show what isn't a, an independent horror movie. And that's exactly what this thing is. So I, I watched that, and I, I really fell in love with the movie, to, to be perfectly honest, from the first time I saw it. Me too. So it, it has been pretty much in my holiday rotation 
for about 20 years now since that that event occurred. Yeah, we've so, watched it almost every year, if not every year. Yeah, I want to say we, we we definitely get around to watching Black Christmas at, at least once a yeah. year. And in the past, we, we've stumbled onto the remakes on cable and, and had those be serviceable. So yeah, uh, <laughs> we'll talk about we, it. We're, we're going to get to those in a minute. First off, let, let's give the classic its real due here, because uh, I definitely want to talk about everything that makes up the uh, this classic film of Black Christmas. So this was given to us by uh, Bob Clark, correct? Yes, Bob Clark. A very eclectic filmmaker because, and, and by the way, he has a number of uh, classic films under his belt. He has uh, this movie, of course, uh, a little film called Porky's, and uh, a movie that you might get sick of, A Christmas Story. And I think that is one thing that makes him a really strange as a director to have that kind of range to do like a classic horror movie, a classic family film, and like, well, I guess a raunchy comedy. A man apparently loves Christmas. Yeah, apparently he does. Um, you know, he he gave us, like I said, two of the biggest <laughs> uh, holiday movies that there ever was. And uh, he did give us, uh, by the way, what is now an unofficial sequel to A Christmas Story in A Summer Story. And uh, I, I like that film quite a bit, actually. But um, it's no longer canon since I think HBO Max just overwrote that movie with their new official sequel to A Christmas Story. This is also the apparently the first seasonal horror movie in movie history. Is it? Yes. Now, that's a great fact. I did yes. not know that offhand that that's where this movie kind of ranks. Um, so this movie stars uh, Olivia Hussey, uh, Margot Kidder, uh, Keir D'Elia, and uh, the man himself, the sexiest man at the time. John Saxon, the sax man himself. <laughs> uh, Last uh, minute edition. Oh, really? Yeah, the the original guy that was going to play the the sheriff, uh, Bob Clark, and the, some of the other principals on the the film met with uh, the original actor, and he was older, and it was clear that he was having some Alzheimer's issues. Oh, wow! Because when they went to the restaurant, he didn't know where he was. Holy shit! And oh. he was asking if he was at home. Oh, damn. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess that'll lose a gig for you. Yeah. Ooh, the man uh, apparently cried when he found out he wasn't going to get the gig. Yikes. That was a uh, dark note to start this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so um, <laughs> uh, that's a real bummer. I didn't know that, but it's cool to know. So anyway, the movie begins with, I, I think, what is sort of a standard and cliche horror shot. Yeah. Which is yeah, the, the POV. POV of the killer. But there's a big asterisk next to that is that this might have been the first time it's really been done. I think so. Uh, there, Okay, just to do a little bit of tech specs here, there was not like a Steadicam rig sort of built at this time. Uh, the Steadicam as we know it, which is basically a Steadicam. If you ever watched a film and, and you notice that the camera's just sort of floating in the air through all these things and not really, you know, have any hand movement, that's called a Steadicam. That's what does that. And that was developed mostly for Rocky, but people had sort of experimented before then. Um, so this was sort of a rig that I believe they made so they could shove it next to the camera operator's head so he could walk around this house to show that he is stalking as well as climb that. What, what, what do you call that structure that's outside of a house that is literally only made for serial killers to climb to get in your attic? A trellis. A trellis. Thank you. Yeah. I grew up poor. We didn't have no goddamn trellis. Yeah. Uh, I, my, I, this is the <laughs> – I never had a house with a second story, so it never came into play at all. But he does climb the trellis, and, and that's pretty much what starts everything off in our flight. Yeah, as he gets into the attic. Yeah, and we are introduced to a, a pretty wide group of girls. Yeah, we got Margot Kidder again. 
Yeah, she's Margot Kidder. Barb the drunk. Yes. Uh, we have Elizabeth. Was it Elizabeth Hussey? I, I, Olivia Hussey. Yeah, Hussey. Yeah, with her yeah, very she, proper and weird accent, British accent. Well, it's it sounds British, but she's actually part Argentinian. So to me, she had an accent through the movie, but it's because she had a slight kind of Mexican flair to it. I suppose so. Kind of like how you might describe like Anya Taylor-Joy today or something like that, because yeah. she has that Spanish and British accent Yeah, that I think gives her a unique voice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just like the way it sounds. This cast has a lot of chemistry. I think that's one thing you really notice from the, the early scenes in this movie. Yeah, they all got along really well on set. The and, only one that did, they, they didn't get along with necessarily was Margot Kidder. She was kind of a loner. Oh, was she? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that you sort of notice is that the girls are all playing off of each other, and they're not really playing off of each other in a way that I would deem, like, unrealistic or, no. like, you know, when you're what like, listen, I, I love Quentin Tarantino, but the way he writes movies is not how people really talk. You know, that that's just the long and the short of it. He has people be far too clever. But this movie does a nice job of sort of, I think, nailing realistic dialogue, and certainly kind of at the time. Because these girls are... Are are tight. You you don't really question the fact that this is a functioning sorority just before Christmas break or just yeah. after Christmas break. You you don't really you don't question it. Yeah, exactly. Because like you know, Barb is automatically down there, and she is, uh, I guess, just I don't like her name. Trading Barb's back and forth. You know, giving everybody a little bit of crap. Yeah, so she does. Yeah, and even, so even Barb does. Yeah, and 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 even uh, Claire. As she is just wanting to get away from everybody, correct? Yeah, she's ready to go home. Yeah, pretty much. So she goes upstairs, and this is when our horror really begins. Yeah, yeah. right away. Yeah, pretty much, because um, she is uh, taken, and uh, she has a plastic bag put on her head. Actually, before this, we get our first instance of the motor, what they what the girls call the motor, which is the phone calls. That's right, that's right. So before we have any real action go down, we have... Um, these calls come in, which was a bigger deal in 1970. You were going to answer every phone call that came to your house because you didn't have a cell phone. Yeah. Here, let, let's let's take a listen to the phone call because I, I, I we're going to talk about these calls quite a bit here because they're a large part of the movie. And in my opinion, like you really need to hear them to appreciate them because if you haven't, you, you, you may not get the gist. And if you've only seen one of the reboots, um, they, they do this element pretty poorly. So let's take a listen to one of the calls here. This is the initial call that – what's her name? Olivia Hussey? What's her character name? Uh – Gosh, I can't think of it right now. I'll think of it. <laughs> you big cunt. You big cunt. You big cunt. Let me lick it. Lick it. Lick it. Let me lick your pretty picky cunt. <laughs> To go find a wall socket and stick your tongue in it. That'll give you a charge. I'll stick my tongue up your pretty pussy. You fucking creep! I'm going to kill you. 
So I, I, I Jess lo- is the actress we're looking for. Oh, okay. That's Olivia Hussey. Oh, Jess. Okay. So we, we get this call to come in and it immediately puts the girls kind of on edge. And I say kind of because I think any woman worth her salt has had to deal with a crank caller and a creep or a pervert. Or yeah. Any, uh, certainly in the 70s. I think now, I, I think the equivalent of this call is more like an anonymous dick pic is sort of like the, the modern equivalent of, of sort of what he's doing. Uh-huh. Because you, I mean, no one's going to pick up strange call anymore, right? Right. It just doesn't happen. But in the 70s, this is just something like a woman was was going to have to deal with. So uh, this does automatically send some shivers through the room. And I mean, you listen to the call. I mean, it really does sound like he is an unhinged sort of crazy person. Yeah, the uh, the calls were the voices of Bob Clark, Nick Mancuso, and an unnamed actress. Basically, what they would do is the director, Bob Clark, would say threatening dialogue off camera, which he gave the girls their reaction. Yeah, and from what I understand, what what he said on the day was fairly tame. And what they ended up recording was pretty fucking out there. Because some of the – Olivia Hussey and Margot Kidder were kind of shocked when they went to see the premiere. And they were like, oh, wow. Like, they were not expecting it to get – as sort of as blue as it does, you know, to, I mean, he's flat out saying, you know, pretty pussy and your cunt and things like that, you know, suck my cock. And those aren't necessarily a lot of words you would have heard in movies around that time, you know, that, <laughs> that weren't having an X rating or anything like that. I mean, right. That was, that was pretty obscene and always would have been viewed that way. One of the other issues that uh, I do know about this call is, uh, was it Mancuso was the other actor you named? Mancuso. Yeah. Do you know how he got his voice to sound so weird? Uh Uh-uh. He stood on his head for like 15 minutes and would flip over and then he would do some of the lower groans and stuff like that to compress like his- um, Thorax? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. And my first thought was like, how the hell did he figure that out? Right? <laughs> he was like, you know, as a kid, I used to uh, stand on my head for 20 minutes at a time to make my voice sound deeper. Because, I mean, I, I would never have thought of that. But he did, apparently. So it's, uh, it's a really strange thing. But it does add to a very creepy ambience to, to really start the movie. And then, like I said, I got a little bit ahead of ourselves. We have Claire go upstairs. And I think in um, for two versions here, Claire is always our, our first victim of the killer. Yeah, Claire is the first one. She's suffocated. Of course, she has a bag thrown over her head. Mm-hmm. Which is iconic in this film. Yeah. That's used a lot in one of the other movies. Yes, yes, <laughs> Overused. yes. Overused. Yeah, yeah. So she she's taken up there, and the um, everything sort of starts moving from that point. We have Barb, uh, uh, Margot Kidder's character. Once that character doesn't come back downstairs, she immediately starts to feel guilty for giving her shit for being a good, like a goody two-shoes, basically. Yeah. I, I Can we talk about the Barb character for a little bit? I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit if you don't mind. But uh, I just – while we're talking about Margot, she's my favorite character in this movie. Why is she your favorite character? Well, she's my favorite character because she has quite a few layers. I think when she comes on screen initially, she is what I would refer to as quite abrasive to the other girls. And, I mean, I think that's putting it mildly, to be honest. I, I think – what you see from her is very impressive in how her character does make a transformation. Like she is sort of the embodiment of what feminism was supposed to be at, at the time, I do believe. Because she's strong. She isn't ladylike in any way, shape, or form. No. Um, she has a sexuality to her, and I think that's sort of indicated by, you know, she sort of uncomfortably talks about sex in a later sequence when Claire's father comes looking for her. 
she has like a sequence where she talks about it like on the table about how long a certain kind of frog or turtle has sex for. And it makes yeah, turtle. Turtle, yeah, and it makes everybody sort of uncomfortable. Except for her, she doesn't really mind because she's sexually liberated and doesn't care. But that does come with its downsides as well. There's a scene, I think it's in the opening sequence where they talked about an attack on uh, one of the girls. And she says this horribly insensitive thing where she goes, Ugh, you can't rape a townie. Because she has this idea of feminism and what a woman is supposed to be. And she looks at that person who got attacked and was just like, Ugh, it was their fault. She wasn't strong. And I love the way her character is portrayed. And as things continue to escalate, she gets absolutely shit-faced, you know, because of, you know, her situation, you know, where you're given a very small glimpse into her background. She calls her mother like a gold-digging whore or a gold-digging uh, bitch or something like that to indicate there are family problems. And one yeah. of the other girls throws a comment like, at least my family wants me home or something like yeah. that. And that is... One of the key moments for me on her character, there's a lot to her that's underneath the surface of the movie. She's kind of showing you just a little bit of, and it's there in, in Kidder's performance. She really is a, a fantastic character. And, and I mean, she gets one of the more intricate deaths. I mean, she gets, I think, the most brutal death in the movie. Yeah, she gets her eyes taken out. Uh, yeah, she she gets um, she's stabbed she's with a glass stabbed. unicorn. Yeah. 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 And I think because she's sexually liberated, she is the uh, our character who probably gets the most phallic death. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, she's penetrated repeatedly by the horn. So I, I, there is a lot to her character. And every time I watch it, I feel like I, I notice something a little bit more. I I think you pointed out this time, she's on the phone with what's his face, the uh, Billy, the killer. Uh And when the call gets a little intense, she kind of takes a moment to herself and she buttons up a button on her shirt. Yeah. And like, I think it was something to where, like, I don't want to entice this person if I ever run into him. Well, it made her uncomfortable. Exactly, exactly. And like I said, there's so much to her that I very much appreciate. She's a full, well-rounded character, and this movie's full of them. And that's what I love about it. Yeah, see, I feel that same way about uh, Jess, Olivia Hussey's character, because she has a a pro-choice rhetoric to her what she's saying yeah she's, i mean her, she her, doesn't her. want to get an abortion she wants to follow her career i mean she wants to get an abortion she wants to follow her career she doesn't want to uh she's very progressive in that sense especially for that time yeah we're talking this movie is made a year after roe v wade yeah so i mean that is a very a political politically statement. charged uh, storyline to be perfectly honest and she's it, it, not cowing to her boyfriend who wants to get married and go through the whole 50s motion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and he certainly does. And and that's a great scene later on. I know we're skipping around what you hate, but when he's, she tells him straight up, like, listen, I'm going to have an abortion. I got it. She has that whole great line. I have the dreams I still had before, and I'm going to do all those things. And he's so mad. He's yeah. furious about it. And you can tell. She's making her own mind up. Yeah, he. it's not anything to do with, like, he wants a baby, he's desperate to be a father or anything he like that. He wants control. Yeah, it's, it's all about that, exactly. Like, he's like, you're going to do what I say because yeah. I'm the man in this relationship. And she's not even close to having any no. of that. I mean, she just doesn't even care. Yeah. I mean, she just, I mean like, her his feelings are completely inconsequential until she gets a phone call from Billy that has a line that he said to her, you know, which is, um, you're, you're treating a, this abortion like getting a wart removed. Yeah. And then Billy throws that line right back in her face again. 
And like that's the only moment she's ever concerned, I think, with anything her boyfriend might have said. Her boyfriend, who, by the way, is the oldest person in college ever. Uh, that actor is from, uh, whose name right now escapes me. Pierre Delia. Yeah, he's from uh, 2001, Space Odyssey. Yeah. So you've probably seen him in that. And I think he was 37 or 38. Uh, Bob Clark just loved him. <laughs> he looks. He was a huge fan of 2001. No, the honestly, when I saw this on VHS the very first time, I just assumed that was like a professor. Yeah. And then, like, as I watched it again, I was like, oh, he's a student? I was like, ah, oh, damn, man, he's a super, super senior. You know, Margot Kidder asked to drink real alcohol as Barb. That's probably not the best idea in the world, but it, whatever whatever it did, it made for a great performance, to be honest. Yeah, she asked to make sure that the alcohol was real. Yeah, I, I can certainly uh, buy that. Um, you know, the, the movie has, the one thing that we're going to talk about with these three movies, or one thing I'll certainly harp on, is, you know, feminism through the ages. And you get some of those elements, like we just talked, we just talked about reproductive rights. And I think one of the other elements that I love is after Claire is missing, her father comes looking for her. And he goes to the sorority, and he goes through a room. Yeah. And he's sort of horrified, you know, like a pro clutcher of, like, what a normal college student at the time would have. Yeah. And, like, there's a funny scene where Miss Mac has to put her hand over an ass that's uh, that's a picture on a wall so her father doesn't see. And uh, I, I really love that. The, the comedy in the movie is a little bit dated, but it surprisingly holds up and works. And, and that scene is very much like the old way, the patriarchy, taking a look at how these young girls conduct themselves and instantly sort of judging them and saying, oh, my, my daughter's become a drunk because of this, which isn't the case. The reason his daughter was killed is because she separated herself from her sisters. Yep. She had to get away from all the drinking and all the fun they were having to um, – to reinforce those puritanical views to get ready to go back to her family. And that, it, that action got her murdered. Yeah. And it's no secret as well. You know, I mean, there's really a lot going on that Bob Clark is saying about, about how women deal with violence and about how women deal with culture and how it progresses. You know, the, the killer doesn't really attack any men, does he? I mean, there's dudes in the house, right? No, absolutely not. Yeah, he, The only guy he kills, I think is the cop. Right. And that's only cause he has to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, I mean, he, Billy is only concerned with attacking women. So they organize a search for Claire where they find yet another body of a young girl murdered. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Cause we, um, this is one thing that this movie has that a lot of others don't is a very active police element. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. And initially, the police aren't very receptive to the problems that the girls are having, but a girl is missing. And, and the, the search parties, there's also another girl who's missing as well that we don't, doesn't really have anything to do with our story. At least we don't think Billy could be doing whatever at night, but yeah. there's another girl that's missing. They find her dead, but they don't ever find Claire because she's in the attic. Yeah. And Miss Mac is the one who has to find her. In, uh was one of my favorite scenes, actually. But, like, that's one thing that you see is after these girls are initially scoffed at, John Saxon's character is someone who takes the girls more seriously. Because he's like, hey, listen, these guys have a complaint. They're dealing with a girl who is missing, and we have a girl dead. Why don't we try doing some damn detective work? And I, I love the way he sort of takes charge. John Saxon might be the only worthwhile male character in the film. Yeah, maybe so. I think he's, he's with the exception of the ending, he is the most effective uh, character in the in, in the most male, most effective male character in the film. Why don't we ever see the killer? I find it to be a lot more creepy this way, and I think that's what Bob Clark wanted because he's this shadowy figure who is madness personified. Yeah, and I, that's far more creepy. I think one of the best shots we get with him was right before he kills Barb. 
he has the unicorn above his head, and they just have that shot of his silhouette and his eye. And he brings it down, and that's all we ever see of him. So really, at that point, he could be anybody. And that's the one thing that separates this movie from a lot of other ones, is it really is a whodunit. Because we have real red herrings in this movie. And that is something that is is not always there. And you can do that because we really have no idea who the killer is. Yeah. And like I said, you'll see a little bit of red herring and whodunits in early slashers. But, you know, by the mid-80s, that's gone entirely. And I, the reason I think it's there, and especially like early Friday the 13th, is because of this movie. You're probably right. Yeah. And this movie has a lot of influence on a ton of cinema. You know, I mean, John Carpenter has been very open about how, you know, how much this movie influenced him for Halloween. Do you know this is Steve Martin's favorite movie? I did not know that. That's very cool. Yeah. Also, this is Elvis Presley's favorite movie. That is unlikely. He vowed to watch this movie every year, and he only got three years in before he died. I was about to say, didn't Elvis die in 77? Yeah. Yeah, so this movie came out in the States in 75. So he'd had one Christmas because Elvis died in October of 77. He didn't make it to Christmas that year. No, he he had three years, three really? times before his death. Oh, okay. Okay. That's what I was thinking. Because I had read that fact and I was like, but this movie came out in 75 in the States and Elvis died in 77. So I suppose he could have watched it, it those three times. But because it, it once it was an initial hit in Canada, it did get a pretty big push here in the States. So we talked a little bit about how much of an impact this movie has. Do you think John Carpenter stole, basically, is what I'm asking you? No, I don't. I think he pays homage. Yeah, and I think that's that's the way to put it, because everybody you is going to You could tell this movie steal. was influential to him. Yes, yeah. I, I, he's never been secretive about that no. at all. You know, as a matter of fact, while I was doing research, I one of the things I looked into, and we won't get into it, barely just a little bit here, and it's the, the babysitter and the killer in the house. Yeah which is the, what, you know, the end of the movie, basically. And I was looking for when was the first instance of it. And there was a movie made before this, a short film in 1971. And I was like, wow, I can't believe somebody found that short film. I wonder who did it. And then I looked it up. It was John Carpenter. Yeah. Yeah, John Carpenter went and found this movie because he had seen it and it inspired him to do the babysitter murders, a.k.a. Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> and this is another one of uh, the movies that really inspired him. And like I said, he, he's never been secretive about it at all. That's not really John Carpenter's way. You know, he's always talking about the filmmakers who helped him or influenced him. And and this is just one of those movies. This is a really strong movie that, oddly enough, due to time, sort of gets ignored. And this is, I mean, grade A cinema, in my opinion. It has fantastic style. It's got good acting. The jokes sometimes land. It's got John Saxon. Yeah. And, and, I mean, at, at the end of the day, too, it has a, a an amazing ending. Yeah. Yeah, because you have this whole movie building up. You have all these terrifying calls coming in. They finally put a trace on the line, and we get the, the, the twist that the call is coming from inside the house. And John Saxon finds this out on the radio, and he calls or he sends back to his bumbling assistant, like, listen, I need you to tell her to get her out of the house and don't tell her the killer's in there. You fucking idiot. Get it done. And of course, he fails at this. This is the same cop that had the humorous moment earlier in the movie with the fellatio joke. So That's right, yeah. That's another little, thing Margaret Kidder does. A little context. Uh, back then, when you had landlines... There wasn't always a number. Sometimes it was preceded by letters. And so that's why you have her saying fellatio. Yeah. 
because that's what would have been the letter combination before her number. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a good joke, actually. And it, it still holds. It made me chuckle today. It, it sort of always does. I And it, 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 you are right. It's something that doesn't hold up due to time because of that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you, you took a second to, to explain that as well. But uh, once the call comes in, she goes upstairs to, to look for the other girls. Uh, she at least grabs a weapon, which I, I do appreciate. She doesn't abandon her friends, and she grabs a weapon. And we get the first instance of a slasher movie where <coughs> our protagonist will walk through the house finding everybody. This is the first time it occurs, and it's great. It really is. Because yeah. it makes sense. He would leave them all laying in their beds. Uh, I really like the way that part of it is is done. It's 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 quite good. And she is confronted by a figure when she goes into the basement. She sees it outside the window, starts breaking its way in, and it's her boyfriend, who is this movie's biggest red herring. And we don't even see what occurs between them, right? Right. We come back, and he's dead. She's safe. The cops put a bow on it. Everybody's ready to go home. They leave her heavily sedated in her bed, but nobody ever checked the attic. And no, this is no, pro- this is poor police work right there. Absolutely. Just as I complimented John Saxon, I can't believe no one checked the attic and they left the injured girl just lying there by herself with nobody to look after. Well, they left a cop outside, but he ain't going to do any good. This movie has one of the most nihilistic endings I can really think of. Yeah, it's not a happy ending. Not in the least. They leave her there, and then uh, about 30 seconds into the credits, we start hearing the phone ring over and over again. And what does it mean? We don't know. We're never told. One of the other elements I think that is very uh, important to the movie is the tracing of the phone calls. Yes. Um, to see all that, to me, it filled me with suspense. Yeah, I think because she's seems- got to talk to she's mm-hmm. got to talk to Billy over the phone and keep him on the line so they have enough time to run and find where the line comes from. That's how they find out who's in that that Billy's in the house is they have to go through this whole tracing situation. Yeah, exactly. And it, the way it's intercut, they go back and forth between the phone company to John Saxon on his radio. Yeah. And he's on his radio, by the way. He doesn't have any way to contact um, Julia, right? What's her name? Jess. Jess, pardon me. Whew, I'm terrible at names. Um, he doesn't have a way to contact Jess really in the car. So it does create a great amount of tension. It does. The second it comes in, you realize like the mortal danger that she's absolutely in. And I mean, it, it, it makes for an electric ending and it, and it leaves you with something you really don't forget about once the movie's over because it's such a, a dark and, and, and really depressing end. How do you feel about the final girl? Well, I love that we have a, um, a non-virginal final girl. I understand that John Carpenter would accidentally set the template that all final girls would need to be virgins. That wasn't his goal. It just so it just so happened to go that way. But this movie does have a non-virginal final girl, and she is, I think, pretty headstrong. She is Billy is not her chief concern. She is very much concerned with her boyfriend. Like yes. that is the main thing. She is worried about and the her baby sisters. in her stomach and everybody around her who's disappearing. Yeah. You know, like I mean, even honestly, her boyfriend is really secondary. In her thoughts. The main thing is she has a child that she is going to need to terminate at some point. A pregnancy she has to get rid of. And she has to keep her sister safe. Yep. That's it right there. And I mean, she's a very strong and smart character. She goes upstairs. She takes a weapon with her. We see this in a lot of movies where people don't even bother to do that. 
But at, I mean, her resolve is a hundred percent when her boyfriend's giving her shit about the pregnancy, she just doesn't even flinch. And I love that about her. She's not one of my favorite final girls, to be honest, because the, the cliche of the final girl character isn't necessarily set in stone just yet. And in my opinion, black Christmas is almost a bit more of an ensemble piece, uh, to be perfectly honest. But this, um, I do really like this characterization and how she's portrayed, how she, how, how Olivia Hussey really play Hussey really plays this character. Do you know, uh, Olivia Hussey took this role cause the psychic told her to. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't take great life advice from a, a lot of psychics, but I think it might be something I'd look into <laughs> either way. Uh, he did her a real favor by, uh, having her appear in this movie. Also, the original title of this film is Stop Me, but Bob Clark decided he liked Black Christmas better due to the irony of something dark occurring during a festive time. Yeah. I, you, know, you know why they changed it in the States? Because it got released here a Silent Night, Evil Night? Yeah. Yeah. They, they released it because uh, the black exploitation craze. They were really worried people were going to think it was a black exploitation film. Yeah. And I mean, I guess that's fair. So that, that was one of the reasons that uh, the title was changed, but... You can still catch a few trailers online where they they do uh, say that, and you know it's sort of interesting uh, to see how uh, sort of alternate history or like another dimension would have viewed this movie. But I do prefer the the Black Christmas title. You know, I did a funny thing in my research for this movie is I often try to look for the clips. You know, like I, I just played you guys a little clip from a Billy on the phone, so I'm always looking for high quality clips, and I found somebody who put a. VHS rip of this movie from like 1990 up onto YouTube. And I realized from a pure nostalgia bomb, it had even had trailers and all, by the way. Oh, wow. And as I watched it, I realized I was watching a 240p copy of a movie I had just seen three days ago on pure nostalgia and VHS effects. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I was like, wait a minute. But I want to say that because. It's a testament to how watchable and how good this movie is. It is. That the character work drew me back in again. It, it, it took me a solid 20-something minutes to realize, wait, I've already seen this movie, and I can watch it in 1080. I don't yeah. need to watch it in, in 4 by 3 We've seen three versions of this movie. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very true. I, I love this movie. This is like an A-plus for me. Um, you know, and it, it's low-budget cinema. I, I think it was a $600,000 budget, and it made like $4 million. Yeah, six hundred twenty thousand dollar budget. It made four point fifty three million dollars, which is amazing for back then. Really, it it really was. It really is just a, a fantastic movie. And if you haven't seen it, I, I recommend you go do it. Especially if you're one of those people out there who has only seen one of the remakes. Uh, I I just urge you to please go and check out the original movie uh, any way you can. We watched it on YouTube. Um, it's available legally there, and there's also a few illegally ripped copies up there as well. One of them's been up for like five years, so I doubt it's going anywhere. So there's lots of ways for you to watch this movie. I absolutely recommend that you check it out. Okay, so moving into the 2006 Black Christmas. Fifteen years ago, on Christmas Eve, his family... <laughs> Became his victims. What have you done? Listeners, I want to take you on a quick journey to the Christmas season of 2006. 
I am finishing up a semester in college, so I decided to head back home to go visit my family. I meet with my mom, and we decided to go check out a movie. And there's a new theater that just opened up. So we're like, hey, my mom loves Black Christmas. She loves horror movies. What a great opportunity. Let's go see this reboot. So we walk into the theater, and we are greeted by this gross and underwhelming piece of shit. That's what this movie really is. I realize I took my mom to the wrong movie when I got the pedophilic incest sexual abuse storyline about what the 20 minute mark of this flick yeah between a father a uh, mother and son yeah yeah <laughs> i mean i was gonna say we'll get there but l- let's just come right out with with that this is the the one of the grossest story elements i could think of in a made this is a hollywood movie this is not some you know independent project you know where someone's doing all this gore shit this was a movie produced by a studio yeah, because the mother, we get a series of flashbacks. The flashbacks just come out of nowhere. They end out of nowhere. It, there's no real rhyme or reason to them. But we get them. In, we get the story of the, the incest in uh in flashback form, and the mother is screwing her uh boyfriend, husband. Well, yeah, let, let, let's 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 do it. Justice. Whatever let, it let, is. Yeah, let, let's do it justice. So. Um, the movie, let, let, we'll get to it in just a second. The, the movie does begin at the asylum, right? Yeah. So we, we, we start there and the reason I want to mention the asylum is they tell us who Billy is in that sequence. Yeah. So we already are given some background on who this vicious killer is, right? Yeah. And he gets out of there through one of the most contrived escape sequences I can really think of. And a random Santa character shows up so the security guard can tell him who Billy is. It's not well done, which will send the template for the rest of the movie here. He escapes from there, and then that's when we finally get introduced to our girls. And instead of taking the time to learn who each character is, they are kind of like a broad overview of, I mean, basically cliches of who characters should be. And instead of spending that time learning who these girls are, we now have what you talked about earlier, three different flashbacks split up, right? I think it's three. It might be four. Yeah, but either way, there's multiple flashbacks, and they are not told in one fail swoop. No. We are given a a first piece of the story, which is Billy is born, he is jaundiced, and because he is yellow. And by the way, he's not just yellow. He is like the yellow bastard from Sid City. He is- He's Gatorade Yeah, he is glowing off the screen, neon yellow. So be that as it may, we, we find that out about him. Then in our second flashback, we discover that the mother grew tired of the father. She murdered him so she could be with her lover. And her lover eventually at some point can't get it up or can't. There's passes out drunk called stairs. Yeah. And so she and this is a trigger warning. She goes upstairs and the son that she wants nothing to do with. She drops her panties in front of her, her robe in front of him. And it is more than, it's not even just implied. It is that she sexually assaults her, what would be a 13 or 14-year-old boy, yeah. if the, my math is correct on that, so she can get pregnant and have her daughter, Agnes. Yeah. Which is how that flashback ends. Now, my favorite part is the the new Miss Mac, who is the only character who transitioned, Andrea Martin, the only person from the first movie to play a, a role in, in the reboot. She tells us the first two stories. She stops right there, and then we go into another storyline, 
And another character picks up the flashback perfectly from where she left it beforehand, as though he knew. Uh, and then he finishes the story, which is that one day when Agnes, I think, is about eight years old, Billy comes down and basically murders the entire family and takes one of Agnes's eyes. Yeah, and makes angels out of her skin. Yeah, yeah, he, he makes cookies out of her, out of her flesh, and cooks them in the oven and eats. He eats them. them. So th- this movie is off to a gross start. And 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 listen, I am when it comes to gross. I've seen Human Centipede, a Serbian film. These sorts of things don't don't bother me. I, but the way this movie does it with the incest and and the pedophilic storyline is just it's just fucking gross and unnecessary. And I remember, you know, we don't really chat about the movies during the week, but I said like, God damn, that shit was gross. And you were like, yeah, I have a reason. You, like you sort of knew why that had occurred. And I was like, I was very curious as to why. And then today when I was doing just a bit of research on the credits and who's in the movie and everything like that, I saw probably the big reason it ended up this way. And that's by the, the gritty reboot hall of fame for assholes. Our first real entrant. That's one Mr. Harvey Weinstein. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> yeah, what happened. Yeah. <laughs> I know this tale from other filmmakers and other horror movies, but please enlighten us. Glenn Morgan and the Weinsteins clashed over this movie. They wanted it to be gorier. It was their idea for the flashback where Billy eats the mother's skin. Yeah, yeah. Like They really push the, the, the gore on this movie. And who's the director again? Uh... I just put my notes Glenn Morgan. Glenn Morgan is a big fan of the original movie. Absolutely loves it. And this movie is a a loose, loose remake. But Bob Clark was on set for a lot of days of this movie. He gave his blessing to redo the liked. He liked the filmmaker. He liked Glenn Morgan. Yeah, he really did. He liked Glenn Morgan a lot. And Glenn Morgan even said, if this movie fails, I'll never direct again. And he never directed another feature after this. Um, It was a big failure. Critics hated it. And Weinstein probably trashed him as Weinstein does want to do be that as it may, you know, th- this movie turns out pretty poorly and Harvey Weinstein's fingerprints are all yeah, over this they thing. are, uh, an, an, you know, another filmmaker sabotaged, you know, there's, there's an alternate universe where Guillermo del Toro doesn't get to make a lot of classic movies because Harvey Weinstein destroyed his career early on, you know, this universe, we're lucky. We got all those great movies. Who knows what else Glenn Morgan could have given us had he not had to make a movie for Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Start his career. But be that as it may, this movie does have problems that are beyond Harvey Weinstein. You know, uh, the the person that plays Agnes, Dean Friss, he would play the cello in between seats to entertain the cast. That's awfully nice of him. Right? Yeah, I wish he would have played the cello in the movie. That could have given the that could have given any character in this Layers. movie a, 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 another dimension. Yeah. Everyone is a paper-thin cutout, just interacting and bumping into each other as the story dictates. All the girls also did their own stunts. Oh, I'm sorry. Let, let's get into this. I, I completely forgot our, our cast list. And, and we have a, a real hot cast of 2006. We have... Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Mary Elizabeth Winstead herself, the Huntress. Lacey Chabert. Chabert. Chabert from Party of Five and Lost in Space. Chabert got a Razzie for that. Yeah. And then uh, we have... Uh, who else? We have Michelle Trachtenberg, uh, one of her first post-Buffy roles. Uh, Scream Queen Crystal Lowe, who I just realized changed her name and almost didn't recognize her. And, you know, it's, it's a, oh, and then uh, who's the other one? It's um, Katie. She's in our blind spot. She was in the Nightmare on Elm Street reboot as well. Katie Cassidy. I'm sorry. That was who I'm talking about. Oh, and of course, uh, the director's wife is in this, uh, Kristen Cloak. Uh, you might recognize her as the teacher in uh, 
Final Destination. That's probably her most notable role that I can think of. Yeah. So probably my first big complaint is this movie is overstuffed with characters. Yeah. And because of that, in the second act, this movie just becomes a body count movie, correct? Yeah. The the killers, Billy and Agnes, are just like laying waste to these people, like left and right, because there's so goddamn many of them. Yeah. What do you think about the kills in this movie? In the flashbacks, it's probably the only time the kills are a little creative, even if they're not great. The um, The stepfather lover comes down the stairs and... Billy, with his superhuman strength, like pushes like a, a Christmas ornament through his face, and like his eyeball is perfectly preserved on the other side of his skull. It doesn't make sense, but the movie's kind of crazy and silly, so that doesn't really bother me. But what does bother me is that none of the kills are, for lack of a better term, like really good. Yeah, I interesting. Think, I think like that's a, like that's probably one of the more interesting kills, and how Billy dies at the end is one of the more interesting ones. But there is a there's a few neck snaps. There's a lot of cutaways, you know, because Agnes uses the bag a lot to cover people's face before she kills them, correct? Uh-huh. The thing is, that's from the first movie, and it's only here because it's part of the IP, right? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense, though. The whole point was to suffocate somebody with the bag. Why would you put a bag over someone's face and then immediately poke a hole in the fucking bag? <laughs> It, it It's just one of those things that, like, I, I understand what the filmmaker was trying to do, but it, it doesn't work in the least because of logic. And there's a lot of times in the movie where that's completely ignored. I think, like, the geographical logic of the house is so fucked. I mean, there are so many times characters walk into a room, step right out, and walk back in, the killer's in there. Yeah. And I'm like, what? The, he's not magical. He just can't teleport. Uh, this, this, oh God, the movie has so many issues like that. Also, we're led to believe that Agnes is also killed by Billy during the flashback where he kills his family. But yet she comes back in the end. Well, it does say she went to an orphanage. Oh, do they? Yeah, he only takes an eye. He doesn't kill her. It's his daughter. Sister. Whatever. Daughter, sister. Daughter, sister. Ugh. I want to play a banjo whenever I say that. Daughter, sister. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's a gross movie, guys. And like I said, I mean it 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 is it is weird. So there's a couple storylines I want to talk about. Really, in the movie, is one of the big changes is we kind of like Halloween's reboot with with from Rob Zombie. We know everything about Billy in this one. Yeah, like every single thing. He was a mysterious character that didn't know a thing about him. We didn't even know who he really was. We still don't know who he really was in the original. Right. And in this one, we know everything about Billy. So we demystify him, and there's nothing particularly wrong with that. But his origin, while fucked up, isn't particularly interesting. I know it's kind of based off some things that happened to Ed Kemper, but even that's far more interesting than what this is supposed to be. The only thing they base off Ed Kemper is the, is the stuck fact in the attic or the yeah, basement. the fact that he would be locked in the basement when yeah. he was wrong, when he did something wrong. Yeah, and yeah, apparently that's that's what John just gets you in this film universe. You, you are locked away as a freak forever. One of the other elements I want to talk about is. Uh, Claire is the first girl killed in this movie, correct? Again. Yes. So, and by the way, we don't have parallels for every character, which is strange. We do have them for some, but not all. Like, there's no Barb. Right. There's a character who's similar, but nowhere near as cool. Anyway, we have a revenge porn sort of subplot in this movie. And it goes absolutely nowhere. But but I want to bring it up for a couple of reasons. One, when we open the movie, like, Claire is staring at the screen of, of people having sex and it's a 2006 screen shot with like a 2006 video camera. So I had no idea that was her in the scene. I just thought she was watching porn. 
Because she just kind of stares at it without like a noticeable expression on her face for a little bit. The only way I figured it out later is because um, Katie Porter's boyfriend comes up and he's in that tape. And I didn't even recognize him. And I, I really like the actor. It's a, um, the lesser Hudson, uh, Oliver Hudson. That's uh, Kate Hudson's brother. Oh, okay. And he was in Scream Queens where he's great. <laughs> I love that show, even though nobody else does. Like with that whole storyline, like he comes up there. And his girlfriend, Kitty Cassidy, by the way, I think I said the wrong actress earlier. She's initially like furious at him for this. And then this character goes on this tirade about, well, I didn't upload the video. And it almost absolves him from any wrongdoing in this thing. And I was like, well, then what the fuck is the story? Right. If he is not a red herring. If you're not going to put any kind of edge on this, like I feel like they wanted to sand that away. Because, you know, once he introduces the fact that, you know, he isn't the one that, that put the tape up there and he and his girlfriend weren't together at the time, I was like, well, this is no harm, no foul then now, isn't it? Right. Then his only real purpose is to give us the other part of that goddamn flashback. But I, I, what I'm saying is I feel at some point there was maybe a little bit more to this revenge porn story. And I, I feel like our producer might have taken a look at that and being like, you know, this guy doing this, he seems like more of a hero type to me, right? Like Weinstein could be like, why don't we sand that away and make him not so much of a harsh character? Yeah, I don't think I had it, but uh, it might not have been this movie either. But I know that there were some seeds cut out. Yeah, you know, and, and this, you know, we, you know, we talked about. In the next one, we talk a little bit more about girl power. And in the first one, we talked about more straight, you know, feminism. And, and this movie, you can see that feminism is at a different place entirely, right? Like, this isn't a female empowerment movie no, at all. No, not the least. Yeah, it's a slasher flick. Yeah. And that's it. There's nothing else to it. it it's just a slasher. Just a, a particularly crummy and gross one. Skin deep. Skin deep. Yeah, that, that, that's really, that's really what, what, is, what it is. So I, I think... Um, one other thing about the flashback I wanted to mention is they give us red herrings via the flashback when they've already told us who the fucking killer is. And I don't know why we're introduced to this girl, Eve, and she does two things in the movie. There is a flashback. They get done talking about Agnes and they do a graphic match to um, Eve's face. And that's sort of in, that's supposed to indicate in cinematic language that person grew up to be this person. To be Eve. And the movie is lying to us because Eve is only there for that fake out that we don't need. She and gets we, killed. And she is, yeah, she gives the glass unicorn, which is nothing more than a token of the original. It means nothing. And she is, like you said, murdered. We, I think. She's it, like the second victim. Yeah, like 15 minutes later, I think they find her severed head or something like that. In, one in of the, the cars. cars. Yeah. And so she absolutely didn't figure into anything at all. It's just something to waste our time in this movie. She's portrayed as like this ugly duckling. She's a, she was actually a model in real life. I'm not surprised at all. You know how Hollywood is. They yeah. Grease her hair down, throw some glasses on her, no makeup, and she's some hideous troll, some hideous beast creature is how Hollywood looks at it. <laughs> I mean, in reality, I mean, you, I mean, you could tell she probably was actually really gorgeous. I'm not surprised by that at all. But it, it's just one of those things that, that really – adds to the movie i mean that sort of subtracts from the movie because you have another sequence that doesn't add to anything this movie is like 90 minutes but my god does it feel like two and a half hours yeah it really does you <laughs> yeah. really feel the leak yeah this this movie just feels like it's sort of killing time to get to the finale and like i said it's it's not even 90 minutes 
Because, I mean, uh, one of the elements that's gone entirely is the police. We still have the phone calls, but they're pretty lame in this version, correct? Yeah. They're just, they don't, they don't carry any kind of weight. And because of that, the police aren't involved really at all, correct? Correct. We only get one phone call of the cops, and they say they're two hours away because of the snow, eliminating them from the story. So uh, this film was marketed as a Final Destination movie in Japan. <laughs> well, there are so many actors there and is, actresses yeah. that are in this. Crystal movie. Lowe and Mary Elizabeth Winstead were in those. Lacey Shabert. I don't think Lacey Shabert was. I thought she was. I don't believe so. Oh, okay. I, I, I'm no. I don't think she was in a Final Destination. Okay. Michelle Trachtenberg wasn't either. No. The director's wife was the, oh, the sister of Claire. Yeah. Yeah, she was the teacher in that first movie, like I said earlier. And, I mean, she's, once again, another problem. Like, when the, when the movie's starting to dwindle characters away, like, they bring in another one. I'm like, no, get rid of all these characters. And like I said earlier, that basically makes our second act devolve uh, entirely into a body count movie, where the kills aren't particularly good, like we talked about earlier. But Crystal Lowe is playing uh, Lauren, I believe. And she's kind of like Barb, correct? Yeah. She drinks too much. She's kind of a bitch. And and that's really all it is. Like, th- there's no camaraderie or sisterhood between the girls. They just act bitchy towards each other throughout the first act. Anyway, Lauren drinks too much and she passes out. And when she's killed, like, Agnes gropes her and kind of molests her a little bit. And it goes on for a little longer than I remembered. Yeah, like, when that was happening, I was like, God, why am, Why does this movie just want to make me feel uncomfortable? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this, this, this was such a fun movie to watch with my mother. I can imagine. I can, oh my god, that must have been so uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably the only other, probably the only worst experience I had watching a movie with my mom was uh, watching Monsters Ball. Oh. Yeah, I'd, I didn't know it was kind. I'd never heard of it before. Oh. But we, we at least watched that at home. We weren't in a so theater. So you could like go to the bathroom, but <laughs> just rub like, one out. No, <laughs> just like distract yourself. Go to the bathroom, wash your hands, oh, okay. maybe check yourself in the mirror. Okay. While the Sex is happening. While the sex is happening. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I, you're the one that went to the rub one out. You're the one who's like, you can go to the bathroom and then she, hey, you can't see, but she gives me like a look. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about, lady? <laughs> so, yeah. So those are all real fun moments for me. But going back to this movie, it's just, I mean, everything is just sort of inconsistent in this flick. From the kills, sometimes being gory, like, you know, Claire's sister, she makes it all the way to the end of the movie, Lee. And when she dies, she just gets her neck snapped. Yeah. I mean, it, it comes into absolutely nothing. The, the final sequence is, first of all, there shouldn't even be a goddamn final sequence. The movie should end in the house. Yeah. Because there's nothing added by them changing locations at all. You know, I mean, the, the movie picks up a little momentum when there is the confrontation in the attic. You know, Agnes is there. She's like, my daddy's here. I'm like, whatever. You know, and he comes out and they have a little fight. And I, I like that Lee falls through the ceiling because that's what would happen. You can't stand in your attic. That's cool. I like that. And it leads to a sequence where um, Katie Cassidy falls through like the space between the walls and Agnes and Billy chase her in there. And it's a real great sequence because Lee is running through the house using a barbell to bust through the wall so she can pull her out of there and yeah. save her. And a fire starts in there and they, you know, they, they actually do a great job. They throw accelerant on the fire and lock them in the house and run out. Yeah. And it's like, that's what you should do. Let those fuckers burn. But somehow they survived that for no reason at all. I mean, I can understand if Jason Voorhees sits up cause he's like a supernatural person, but I mean, Agnes is just a regular human. Billy's just some dude with jaundice. 
So why he can survive burn wounds and why the cops didn't make sure they were dead when they put them in the body bags is way beyond me. But they both get out of them. They both attack in the hospital. Agnes is dispatched with the lamest, and I do mean the lamest, defibrillator kill I've ever seen. <laughs> it just leaves her skin a little singed, right? Yeah. It's not, I mean, considering all the things we've seen in this movie, all of a sudden they're like, well, let's give Agnes some dignity. They should have made her head explode or something cool. Yeah. We don't get anything like that. And then in the end, there's this sequence where our protagonist and the woman who's just ended up being our final girl, she's running away from Billy. And there's Billy in the light. And you can see our villain, which is just a middle-aged man, yellow, in his pajamas. That's it. I mean, the second you see him, I mean, the second that scene came up, I started chuckling. Like, cause just seeing him in like full light, I was like, what, how the hell could anybody expect to be scared of a yellow guy in his pajamas? Yeah. I mean, how could anyone muster the tiniest bit of fright for that? You know, they have a little fight. He's thrown and impaled on a tree and the movie ends immediately thereafter. And I mean, immediately no falling action at all. They do three or four shots of him like, you know, on their guts falling down and then immediately cuts to like directed by. And that's it. The movie's over, and mercifully, that's it. Yeah, it just ends. Yeah, like I said, there, there's not anything else else to it than that. Like I said, it, it definitely should have ended inside the house. It, it, you know, it did not. This was, um, this was. I used to consider this one of the worst reboots. I I, I always really did say that for a number of years. Uh, over time, I've I've stopped thinking that because there have been far worse movies that have been made, but this is certainly one of them, and I put it up there as well. Because it immediately brings down the esteem of the original movie. Yeah. Especially if you're younger and you've only seen this movie on cable. The original was shot in 40 days. Oh, yeah? This movie was shot in 29. Yeah, this is going to be a running theme here for these remakes as they are kind of pinched here for time. Yeah, yeah. Glenn Morgan approached Mary Elizabeth Winstead at an airport at 4 a.m. for the role of Heather. She agreed to be in it based on that, based on him convincing her. And yeah, because people would be surprised if she plays such a small part, considering she's probably one of the bigger names still like around. Yeah. Amanda Seyfried auditioned for the lead of Kelly, but lost it to Katie Cassidy. Uh, they should have they gone with Seyfried. I, I don't like Katie Cassidy. I never have. The reason why they didn't cast her is because they didn't want to meet girls in the movie. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about yeah. that. But they didn't mind the Final Destination. Yeah, they didn't mind that. They didn't mind that. Okay. Because I guess it's horror based. I, I don't know. Who cares? Right. Who gives a shit? Uh, the only other fact I have is the movie made $20 million and gets a $9 million budget. Yeah, that was the, the last thing I had written on my list was was the, despite the awful reviews and really terrible box office, the movie still made profit. And that's why people make these kind of horror movies. But be that as it may, you know, a $9 million budget is fairly modest for the time. It's not awful, but it certainly isn't a very good budget. Okay, so you talk about this movie bringing everything down for the original let's talk about this movie bringing everything it's down my privilege oh, to yes. teach you this semester enjoy your winter breaks and merry christmas sup ladies excited for tonight it is our last day of our last fall semester of college ever jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle i do like these christmas songs that we get in these movies it's probably the only element I really liked of the last movie was the Christmas music used throughout the score. Yeah. So we get another reboot in uh, 2019. And it's, um, first off, one element, because we just got done talking about budgets and money. 
So that movie in 2006 was made for a little over $9 million, correct? Yes. This movie was made for five. And this lets you know immediately what's going on here. You would expect budgets to rise, and $1 million from budget to budget is not particularly impressive. It's the 28th worst, lowest opening weekend ever. I, I can, yeah, because I, I remember that story hitting actually um, when the movie came out that the, it had done so, so poorly at the box office. That's the only reason I, I knew about it. And then when I looked at it, I was like, Black Christmas. And I, I, see, I saw the trailer and I was like, well, it can't be a remake of the Bob Clark film. And then I was like, oh, it is a remake of the Bob Clark movie. This movie is so bad. It has no facts. I'm, Literally, I'm, the only facts that I have are the budget and that 30 minutes of footage was cut to achieve a PG-13 rating. Yeah. That's um, it. So I have a couple of things about the movie. Uh, first of all, as we usually do, this was uh, written and directed by uh, Sophia Tikal and stars Imogen Poots, uh, Elise Shannon as Chris. We have uh, Lily Donahue as Marty and uh, Caleb Eberhardt as Landon and one Carrie Elways as Professor Gelson. Yeah, I love that Carrie Elways is in this movie because he's great, but... Yeah, Carrie always is, is a lot of fun. He understands what kind of movie this is. And listen, before I start tearing into this director, I want to say that I think that this movie, first of all, uh, she was given basically nine months to go from inception of project to in theaters. Yeah. like She was given a very small window. Now, I know nine months sounds like a lot. You could make a human in that amount of time. But that's pretty tight for making a major film. To be perfectly honest, with pre-production, script, post-production, pre-production, actual shooting, yeah. effects, you know, I mean, everything takes time. It really, it really does. It really does, guys. It takes time. So, I mean, it, it, it's tough to, to say the least. However, a lot of people have made films, you know, with a lot less money in yeah. tighter situations. Yeah. But I, I will say that to one thing to to miss to call's credit, and uh, she she made a there's been a Hulu horror series that name escapes me. She directed one of my favorite episodes of that. We saw that one with um, the woman, the shapeshifter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. She made, she, she did one of those episodes and I liked that quite a bit. So I, I think, you know, she, she has some skill, but this movie didn't show it off. And I did want to preface that because we were about to tear into this film from this point forth. Yeah. So the movie begins with one quick little horror scene that isn't particularly well set up or particularly well shot. Correct. Yeah, it's a girl walking down the street. She gets nervous. There's a random guy walking behind her. She keeps checking her phone. She's getting all these weird DMs. Uh, and she thinks the guy's behind her is the one that's DMing her, which is how? Yeah. Like, <laughs> he has to know you. Yeah, he has to know your number or anything yeah. like that. There's some weird cheesy app the movie made up, and she's getting uh, DMs from the founder of the university. And the, uh, his PFP is just a picture of his bust. So <laughs> this is... A loose connection to the original's calls. Yeah. But once again, one of the big problems with PD-13 is we can't go too far in any of those. And it's not particularly engaging. She's chased down by some, uh, by a hooded figure and killed when he's magically inside a house she runs into. Yeah. He, she's killed with an icicle. Yeah. Killed an icicle. Very Christmassy. And so from this point, we move from here and we go directly to uh, meeting our characters. Yeah. So... You know, I talk. This movie has less characters than the previous one, uh, but man, um, these characters aren't 
that great, to be perfectly no. honest. They're and not it, fleshed out at the, all. No, they they really they really aren't. They they're left with a lot of grading qualities and like I even you know Riley is kind of bland. That's Imogen Poot. She's our lead. She like I said, she's a little bit bland. I don't want to say unlikable because she has a few nice traits here and there. But it, you know, it, it's not exactly like a full, well-rounded character in that respect. And then we have um, Chris, who is uh, an awful, awful human being. <laughs> I can't stress that Chris is almost written like a parody of cancel culture and wokeness. Correct? Oh God, the wokeness in this movie, the feminist wokeness is just ugh. As a feminist, it's insulting. Yeah, yeah, it, it's. Honestly, like when the film began, I had to stop for a minute and be like, did some 40-year-old dude write this trying to make the most woke script that he could? Because that's, that's, that's what it felt like. It really did. It felt like somebody just trying to make something that appealed to uh, modern women and modern feminists in, in, in today's society. And it wasn't. It it's, wasn't at all. It's the type of feminist that I can't stand. It's the type of feminist that complains about women who show their breasts on YouTube. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't stand that type of feminist. That yeah. is feminism. Yeah. <sighs> so I, I guess a lot of this is, is sort of personified in, in the Chris character who is sort of um, slacktivism, I guess would be the term for it. Like she's an activist, but not, I mean, she talks like, like a Twitter conversation, basically like a Twitter thread, basically. Yeah. Like she's just going off and she's almost hitting like woke bingo in like almost everything that she says. And she's a particularly grating character for a number of reasons. She's annoying. Yeah. Listen, with the, the plot of this movie is it whatever. Doesn't We're going to jump around to the things that we don't like. So there is, a date rape sequence in the first act of this movie, correct? Yeah. One of the girls is kind of drunk and a guy's taking advantage of her and Riley sees this and sort of stops it, right? Calls his attention to it, calls the guy out. And the guy acts like a cartoonish villain, like almost twirling his mustache, like, yeah. you bitches, I took my time here. I deserve the pussy. You know, I mean, like he's ridiculously over the top. And it, I mean, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't help you identify with the situation at all. Right. And we're supposed to look at Riley as this big heroic character for doing this, but the scene falls flat by sort of how ridiculously it's staged. Like the idea of just like walking by a room and seeing a date rape and, and being able to judge the situation perfectly from just like one second of passing by. Right. Yeah. Cause it could be a consensual couple. She doesn't really know. She's just making that guess because we have to, we only have a limited amount of runtime basically. So, she calls this guy out on it, and he's an asshole because he has to be a cartoonish villain. No one can have any nuance at all. He leaves, and because of that, she has to take over in this big sing-along they're doing at their sister, or I guess their brother fraternity. And they sing a song where they expose one of the pledge members, not one of the pledge, one of the members of the fraternity had assaulted Riley before Brian, I think is his name. Yeah, it's not important. Random white guy, um, because they're interchangeable. They we don't get any character traits of any of these fraternity guys at all. Like at, at one point, like I didn't realize it was two separate guys at the end of the movie because they look the same. Like I was like, because oh, I don't know anything about anybody. But anyway, they sing this song and like everybody in the movie loves it, and it's pretty lame. Apparently, Riley's making up these lyrics as they go along, but the other girls sing along with her like they magically know what's up. I, I don't really know. It's it's poorly thought out, like a lot of the elements of this movie. 
but it gets a huge rise out of everybody at at the party. And I don't know why. Because I think if anybody was a, a rapist with power, they would just be like, whatever, bitch. And never, ever think about that part of a conversation or not the night again, right? Right. But it absolutely rattles everybody at the fraternity. And I don't know why. Like, it, it, it happens because this movie needs its story to go on ahead. You know, do you have anything you want to say about that sequence? No, not really. I mean, I just hate all this feminist bullshit in this movie. <laughs> Someone's going to clip that right there and make you like a star on uh, Truth Social. There, it, It's the reason why there's, there are men out there that complain about certain feminists. Yeah. And this is the type of feminist that they complain about. Yeah. Oh, and, and like I said, we were just... One just pushing it in your face. Yeah, we were just talking about Chris and... You know, we Riley comes back with the Santa costume before the show, and she doesn't want to do it. And Chris totally pushes Riley into it, like twists her arm into it, even though her attacker is out there. Like, yeah, yeah. that and was I, totally triggering. Absolutely, but Chris doesn't care because it's something that she wants. It's her crusade. Yeah, exactly. And I would be okay with this if Chris was ever confronted. But there are there are a few more instances in this movie where Chris does something truly kind of fucked and no one ever calls her out on her bullshit. And as a matter of fact, at the very end of the movie, Riley goes up to her and goes, you were right. We should always be fighting. And I'm like, no, she isn't right at all. Uh-uh. I was like, fight. Sure. But I mean, like this, she is the least right character in this movie. She's the worst person in this movie. And they treat her like a big time face. Yeah. And it's infuriating to say the least. You know, I mean, she has, let I me, mean, let, let's go down the list. So she, Basically pushes her friend into that. She records the whole thing and she uploads it to her social media account that they can't name because they don't want a Twitter sponsorship or whatever. And she uses her friend for views and she leaves an accusation her friend made accusing one of the boys of rape, which is something you just can't do in some kind of video on social media. Gets her friend in trouble and barely even cares. As long as she got the views, what's it matter? Yeah. Later on, they go Christmas tree shopping and she makes this comment and she's like, don't worry, my parents are out and my dad's let me have the credit card since they're um, ditching me on this vacation. So she's just spending her father's money over and over again at anything she wants, you know, without sort of understanding how class comes into play at all. Like the movie, this movie is nowhere near as nuanced as it should be for tackling these heavy issues. Yeah. That's the big problem. And, and, and skin deep. Yeah. I mean, very much so. It's a mile wide and inch deep. I yeah. mean, it, it's just, you know, and, and like I said, you know, you have Chris right there personifying all that. You know, she is a rich girl who only sees things from her perspective, only does things when she wants to. Later on in the movie, when everything is revealed, she tries to take off and run. She doesn't want to help her friends when everything is finally revealed. Now, she does come through in the fight, but that's only because we need a finale. Yeah. But I mean, I we mean, need that one. female empowerment. Yeah, yeah. It, it's almost as cringy as the the scene in Endgame where all the women get together and then fight together for some reason. Like they all just happen to come together on the battlefield. This, um, let's see here. Is I, I, before I you know finish up the the shitting on the movie, there is a, one other element I did want to talk about, and that is the cops are back in this one. Yeah, we have. Maybe, Campus police. Yeah, maybe the best scene in the movie, which are real cops. They're just bored. And Riley goes to one of the officers there and tries to explain the situation that a girl is missing. She's getting these weird texts. You know, things are adding up over and over. Things aren't adding up and she needs some help. 
And the cop is less than helpful. And she does such a fantastic job in that sequence, portraying someone who was truly frustrated trying to tell a cop and beg for some kind of help. Yeah. And the cop is just not that interested at all. It's one of the movie's better scenes, and it's something really small. <laughs> it's not even like a big time kill or like a big scare or anything like that. You know, it's it's just one of the few moments where I think the director's vision shines through and comes in. And that's it. Just one moment. That's it. Do you have anything else from the film that you would want to say as a positive? As a positive? Yeah. No. This movie truly sucked. It it It's not even worth talking about. It's a throwaway movie. Uh, there's nothing of interest in this movie. There's nothing uh, of note. The only thing that I would say is I liked Imogen Poots's performance. Yeah, I think she's – the performances aren't necessarily the problem I, I would have had in the movie. I think all the actors are fine. I think everything comes down to the screenwriting and the directing, which really wasn't up to par. You know, like I said, some of that's due to time. Some of that's just due to ideas. I know one of the girls, the one who's missing her diva cup, she is killed. What a weird scene. Yeah. Well, she's killed in what is basically an homage to The Exorcist 3. It's the same type of scare. Like we spent a long time watching a character walk around until somebody eventually, you know, jumps out and, and grabs her. And I mean that that's sort of the best the film can do is is homage, you know, one of the better scares and just not do it as well. The movie has nothing to do with the original. It has nothing well, to do with the remake. No, I mean it, it's it's loose. It's really in, in name only. Matter of fact, it doesn't even need to be a Christmas movie, to be perfectly honest. It doesn't really do any service to that at all. It doesn't. Yeah, it's, not, it's not in the least. It's set at Christmas, but there's nothing Christmassy about no, this not, movie. Not, really, no. not even the house is Christmassy. No, no, it's not. They um yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just because they had the property, they had this IP, they had to tie it in there in, in some way, shape, or form, and this is what we got, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I mean, the, the you know, in, in the finale, we're, we're introduced to, like, a supernatural element, because why not? <laughs> you know, because why not? You know, just make it completely different. It turns out that all the boys are, are being infected by the bust, and he's able... Carrie Elway's professor character is using it to control them and to try to rid the world of feminism so men can be on top again. That's actually literally what he is suggesting and saying. Yeah. Um, you know, once again, he's cartoonishly evil and over the top and everything like that. You know, and it leads to a final sequence, which is a really poorly poor. Well, let me see. I'm trying to think. Poor doesn't even begin to sum it up. I guess lazily choreographed fight sequence. Uh, you barely see anything. Uh, it's a lot of quick cuts. It's just it's just not well done. And eventually, Riley's able to get away from her attacker and destroy the bus, and everything goes back to normal. And then, as the film was established that these boys are under the control of the supernatural influence, <laughs> they lock the boys in the room after they find this out and light the entire fraternity on fire, burning all the innocent boys alive who have been overtaken by that evil. Yeah. And the movie doesn't even address it. It doesn't even care. All these guys just fucking burned to death because their friend Chase immediately says, like, I was under its spell. So we're clearly established. The girls clearly know that's something that happened. And they just let all those these guys These girls kill, burn. like, all these, all they these do. kids. They like, do. They lay waste to those incels. They yeah. really do. They kill the shit out of those fraternity members. Uh, um, the one thing I did like in the movies, if you notice, like... Uh, one of those guys is choked with a bag. Another one's killed with a unicorn. All the ways the girls were killed in the previous movies are now used against the men. 
Oh, okay. I didn't notice that. Yeah, well, I mean, the movie was written by a feminist. So there are a few of those instant instances in there that are sort of interesting to kind of see and to note. But, you know, that's a bad cute, feminist. That's a cute little factoid than, than really anything else. You know, because the movie's PG 13, we don't get anything interesting kill wise. We get weird cuts because it is. I think one of the characters' severed head is shown for like a quarter of a second before they cut away to the reaction. We don't even, we can barely see that there's like an axe sticking out of her head. You know, that, that's the kind of movie he's in. At the very end, they go to kill the bad guy. Our lead character doesn't even get to kill him. Chris does. And she says, suck my... And they cut away because apparently you can't say suck my clit in a PG-13 movie in America. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it, it's a it's a travesty. It really is. I, I, um, I have a few more notes, but it's not worth talking about this movie. No, I, I, you know, I just I, I didn't care for it and it's going to be largely forgotten because nobody saw it and it's not as weird as the other movie, at least. It's just kind of there. OK, so because we've gone on for a while here, uh, I'm only going to read one review this week, but I will tell you what the user reviews were. 1974 is 4.1 user review, 71% on Rotten Tomatoes, 7.1 on IMDb. 2006, 14% on Rotten Tomatoes, 4.6 IMDb. And then the 2019, 2.0 user review, 39% on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 3.5 on IMDb. Very well. And then the review I have. For a slasher film, this is more like a predecessor to the genre. The film is pretty boring, and the kills are the most part bloodless and uncreative. The killer makes prank phone calls to a sorority that kills them off one by one. John Saxon is there as a cop for some reason, but the cops don't seem to exist for any other reason than to pad out more than ample runtime. <laughs> the end is a slasher genre equivalent to it was all just a dream. Basically, you never know who is doing the killing and why. What the fuck? How unsatisfying can you get? Most at least the entertaining slasher films have a twist or reason and impetus for the killer's motivations. That's 90% of the story and why you want to watch. Production values were pretty decent. The actors all did their parts decently. But with no central thread holding what they're trying to pass off as a story, this is a big pass. And only for those who are horror film buffs, completists, the viewer has no idea what is motivating the killing and the characters are so thin, you don't care. When the credits rolled, I caught myself making boo, boo sounds. <laughs> Person didn't like the original. Makes a good point about the the fact that there's nothing, there's no motivation to the kills. That is true. That is true. Billy's just a psychopath. Yeah, just, just happens to stumble onto them. So yeah, it's, well, with that, I, I guess I guess that's the end of the show. There's nothing really else to talk about it. That, or is there something <laughs> else to talk about? I had to set myself up because I know Meredith is getting tired. Yeah, <laughs> this is the I'm longest show see. we've ever done, but we knew, we knew it was going to be this way because we, we knew we had a lot. We to say love the first movies. movie. So I don't have Roger Ebert, but I have Mr. Gene Siskel reviewing Black Christmas. That works. The nineteen seventy four. Yes, he is. He reviews the original film. He was not have been around for the two remakes. He was the lucky one. Black Christmas is a routine shocker about a killer who haunts a college sorority house. The virgin coed is the first to go. Smothered in plastic. Next on tap is the house mother, majoring in alcoholism, hung up on a meat hook. The picture has only one kind of cheap thrill. It is women repeatedly walks, walking slowly into certain death. 
and the director plays out the suspense for more than it's worth. A few laughs are generated by the college girls talking dirty. Originally titled Silent Night, Deadly Night, Black Christmas is notable only for indicating the kind of junk roles that talented actresses are forced to play in movies. Olivia Hussey and Margot Kidder are reduced to playing mannequin-like co-eds waiting to be stabbed. I um I couldn't agree less with that, but um, Gene Siskel was not known for being very kind to horror flicks, and he wasn't kind to that one at all. He was also not a, as a good an orator as I, I I don't I don't think so either. But that's doing him a disservice. I mean, he doesn't write a long review of it because I'm sure he didn't think there'd be anything to really talk about with Black Christmas or there'd be a movie yeah. that people are going to talk about almost 50 years later. So, and, and it's just the way it is. And if you want to let us know that no one will talk about us in 50 years, you can do that by emailing us at grittyrebootcast at gmail.com. Absolutely. And of course, you can always get in touch with us at Gritty Reboot on Instagram and TikTok. That's probably one of the easiest ways to get in touch with us and to let us know how you're feeling about the show. Yeah, and we'll talk to you guys next week. All right, guys. Merry Christmas.